The dictionary gives two definitions for the word ghostly. The first is spiritual, relating to the soul. The other definition is having the characteristics of a ghost, spectral. In other words, just about the perfect description of the label Ghostly International, which has been operating in an impossible to grasp specter of beauty, tone, and texture since 1999. I'm Vivian Host, and in the third season of the VMP Anthology podcast, we're gonna be talking in depth about the box set that we've curated with Ghostly in celebration of their 20th anniversary. Over the coming weeks, you'll be unpacking a six-album, eight-LP set featuring some of the label's most beloved titles coming to vinyl for the very first time. 20 years may be barely legal in some states, but it's nonetheless a good age for an independent label, much less one that's had to survive the mercurial twists and turns of the electronic music scene. Sam Valenti IV started Ghostly in his dorm room at the University of Ann Arbor, Michigan in 1999. He was an art history major, which he eventually put to use, turning Ghostly into not only a hub for cutting-edge underground music, but also visual art and design. They've consistently been at the forefront of technology, creating things like mood music phone apps and digital compilations before anyone else even thought of it. Incidentally, Ghostly also started a sister label in 2000 called Spectral, which is devoted to dance floor cuts from the stranger corners of house and techno. You won't be receiving any Spectral records in your box set, but you'll find out just how important Midwestern raves, dance floor euphoria, and drum machines are to the overall story of the music that Ghostly puts out, whether it's avant pop, ambient, left field hip hop, electro, or something else entirely. This is also a tale of record stores and the quirky people who run them, and a set of artists and curators from a unique axis in the Midwest, where electronic dance music has always been sacred and vinyl is absolutely revered. In subsequent episodes of this series, we'll be exploring that further as Sam and I talk through each album in the box set, its story, and why it's special. We'll also hear from ghostly art manager Molly Smith, label director Jeff Owens, and visual artist Will Calcutt. And I've traveled from Los Angeles to Detroit to Ypsilanti to the Bay to bring you stories from ghostly artist Christopher Willits, Shigeto, Tad Mullenix, Osborne, and Joshua Eustace from Telephone Tel Aviv. So with that, from Vinyl Me Please and Ghostly International, this is Of Art and Artifice, the first episode of the third series of the VMP Anthology podcast. In a second, I'm about to turn things over to Sam Valenti IV, the founder of Ghostly International. He has lived in New York since 2006, but Ann Arbor and Detroit, Michigan are still key to the label's spiritual center. Sam was in college when he started Ghostly, but he was thinking about music, art, and the meaning of record labels long before that. Music defined my youth, so the idea of being really into hip-hop or eventually electronic music, what have you, it really gave me a sense of identity and purpose and context for the world. Record labels, to me, were shorthand for like taste, whether it, it was Def Jam or Factory or Planet E or what have you. It, I, I, I felt like I could trust those labels at that time. You know, I think of it now almost like an art gallery. You can have this institution that changes, the artists change, but the 
context remains the same. It's a form of wanting to be involved, but without trying to, um, I wasn't trying to be the producer on people's records or like tell them what to do, but it was a way of sort of partnering with artists in a meaningful way. Also just helping artists, music that I thought was underexposed kind of get exposure. So I saw as labels as, as sort of communication vessels where people would follow the label and be like, okay, this is an interesting direction. I'll at least check it out because the label has vouched for it. And that's how I felt about buying records. I, at the time, would go to Record Time in Detroit and it was kind of like a constellation of all the radio and club DJs in town. So you have Mike Huckabee, you'd have Scott Grooves, um, Keith Kemp, Derek Plazleko, Mike Servito, and even like DJ Godfather. You know, that's where Dilla shopped too. And like, you know, I used to shop with House Shoes, who's one of my mentors at Street Corner Music. So I would go on the weekends and effectively check in with all these DJs. But just like having that level of like devotion uh, for all these different genres at short range, creating sort of in a pre-internet or early internet context that, you know, that really informed and still does how I think about music. Sixteen, seventeen. I was like a, a mobile DJ. I was like school dance, house party level. I had my own speakers and amp. I think hip hop was the context, but I, I just love the production. I love the, um, I like things that have a little bit of like a sort of rough edge, obviously like well executed, but that era in hip hop had a, um, it's this sort of sample era had character, it had story, like I had this Japanese book that had all this before, like who sampled, it was like this record samples this record. And it was just fun to sort of, that's how I learned about jazz and R&B and, it was kind of like a way to sort of understand music. And, you know, the producer was so important hip hop at that time too, that I think was kind of the, the beginning for me of understanding electronic music, the idea of like what production was. And the bridge record for me that I really remember was 1997 was um, Square Pusher's Hard Normal Daddy on Warp. And that record is kind of like a, you know, drum and bass on like, whatever drug you want to use. Like it was just pushed further. And also it was kind of like fusion jazz and it was very melodic and playful, but I was like, okay, like this is just an extrapolation of stuff that I was already excited about. The sort of warp train of experimental electronic music felt like a natural place to go. So that's obviously the Aphex Autechre continuum. Detroit Radio also sort of showed the sort of connection between booty, house, techno, drum and bass, hip hop. So like that was already kind of being sculpted. And then I'm like, okay, this is, so yeah, I just felt, I remember feeling really excited because it was this discovering in quotes, electronic music felt like liberation in some ways. It was like, okay, here's this like open new canvas. Uh, and then so having so much of it in literally in my backyard, you know, having raves happening, you could have catch, caught me going to the Packer plant and Detroit raves. It was sort of the end of the sort of Detroit rave era. So going to factories, hearing music in a, physical context, understanding it isn't about listening on a CD necessarily. It's about feeling it and the night and like this, the environment, the architecture.
so I got to college, which for me was University of Michigan uh, in Ann Arbor uh, in 1998. And I had been DJing, as I mentioned, and collecting records. And um, I, I found my my college like application, like cover letter recently. And it said like, I want to start a record label in, in it, which I actually forgot. I thought I thought of it after. And I had the mission to at least meet musicians. And so my first sort of like attempt at that was I, I there was a paper called the Michigan Independent, which I don't think exists anymore. But I, I was like, I want to write for this. I and mean, I wasn't really a good writer, but I was like, I heard about this guy, Disco D, who is this DJ who plays like ghetto tech or booty, whatever you want to call like fast Detroit techno. Um, I want to write about him because he's like has a residency in town. He's like only 17 or 18 and he's put out a record. So it's like almost like, OK, this is someone who's actually done it. Um, and I met with, up with him for like a slice of pizza or something and like I had my, like my little tape recorder and everything and just became friends and just just his sort of joie de vivre and like love of making, you know, doing these sort of intricate heavy scratch sets um and also just be like having a residency at a club before you could even get into the club is ambitious uh and then simultaneously also meeting at um my first week of school is like ambling to, to to parties uh in the basement of one of these parties this guy had a little synthesizer and a drum machine and was making playing his own songs and um i don't know what i said to him but i was like we should get together i got his information and then we ended up having like a sandwich the next week and that was Matthew Deere. I don't know what his ambitions were. I mean, I think he wanted to make music, but just kind of starting to sort of see this cast of characters like, okay, these are people that are accessible. I don't know anything, but at least I'm like starting to meet people who are making making music. And about a year later, you know, the first ghostly record is Matt on the A side and Disco D on the B side under the name Daisha. I have my little DAT tape, which is a digital digital audio tape for those who've not seen that, um, which is sort of a pre-CDR format or like a little more accessible. And I studied abroad in London my summer after my my freshman year, brought the DAT with me. I don't know why, but um, it was easy to get records made there. So I had like 300 copies, I think, made locally, <laughs> which I thought I was going to sell to all the stores because there were so many record stores in London. Um, I ended up selling like 50. So I had to like ship the rest back. And I think that like killed the profit on it, but we actually ended up selling them all. And then started to get like some love, like people at, at the movement festival were playing it, like Shake and Sean Deason and people like that. And Matt and I were getting faxes like for like licensing requests and stuff. So it was like, okay, this is a thing. So we made some more copies and like, yeah, you I mean starting a label, just like now you can start a band camp and you have a label. Like at the time having a, a 12 inch was, a label, you know, being able to put a record out and have it, it sink or swim on the validity of the product felt really good. So it's like, okay, people, people actually like this. They're buying it. That flywheel of like making a thing and selling it, letting the market decide if it's good or not. And Detroit being a very kind of hardcore place, like people weren't going to give you any love if it wasn't good. You're not saying that first record is that good, but I think at least mentally I was thinking if this is good enough for this community of people, if record time will carry it. And I still have like the, the consignment slip from that first purchase order of like 20 copies, then that's 
that's the peers I met. You know, it wasn't about the radio. It wasn't about my parents. It was just like, will DJs actually play this record? Put your hands up for Detroit, our lovely city. Put your hands up for Detroit, our lovely city. Put your hands up for Detroit, our lovely city. So that was a little piece of Matthew Deere's Hands Up for Detroit, the first ghostly record ever. It had been kind of gaining steam in the underground in the U.S. and overseas, and a couple years down the road, a Dutch big room DJ by the name of Fetty Legrand samples this record, and it becomes an enormous club hit called, very similarly, Put Your Hands Up for Detroit. And when I say this was a huge club hit, I mean that you can walk into any gym right now in 2019 and they'll probably be playing it. The DJ even plays it at Detroit Tigers and Pistons games. I'm pretty sure you've heard it, but if not, here's a little sample of the Fetty Legrand version. Put your hands up for Detroit, a lovely city. Put your hands up, put your hands up, put your hands up, put your hands up for Detroit, put your hands up. But yeah, Matthew Deere's first record, our first record, becomes this big song. And it didn't start as a big song. I remember hearing about it. People were like, oh, I was in Ibiza and I heard this track. It sounded like Matthew. I'm like, really? They're playing that record? That isn't, it's okay, whatever. And then another person would mention it. And then finally got to me and I was like, okay, here's this record. And it's like gaining some steam. So I emailed the label and was like, hey, I'm pretty sure that this is our sample. Like, you know, just kind of like casual. And they were like, no. Just go away. Effectively, it all gets worked out and we get, you know, back into the credits of the song. And, and um, but yeah, I mean, that that's a great example of sort of the luck, the randomness and luck of music is that you don't know where your stuff's going to end up. Um, even if it looks like a bad thing at the time, it seemed very scary that this was like eating our song. It's okay. I know where I'm going. The wave breaks your way sometimes. And like, yeah, that definitely helps fund the label for a couple of years. As Martin Mills told me prophetically, you have to, you know, prepare to be lucky. And it's it's fun. It's fun to hear that song at like a Detroit Pistons game or something. And it's a weird part of our DNA in this pop culture landscape. Vivian Host, and you're listening to the VMP Anthology Podcast, the story of Ghostly International. You may be getting the sense right now that this label didn't happen in a vacuum, and things definitely would have gone down differently if not for two guys from Ann Arbor named Todd Osborne and Tad Mullenix. Both a bit older than Sam Valenti, they were instrumental in turning him on to things that would shape Ghostly's taste matrix. Oh yeah, and they're also Ghostly artists, 
Plus, they record Crazy Raga Jungle together as Sound Murder and SK-1. A couple months ago, I cruised out west from Detroit, about 40 minutes down the M14, to go catch up with Todd and Tad. First up, let's hear from Tad. He's got many aliases, including Dabry for electronic hip-hop, JTC for jacking house and techno, Charles Manier for Cabaret Voltaire-inspired synth experiments, and Exaltera for jungle techno. In fact, he can just about make any kind of music that he puts his mind to, and pretty faithfully at that. Here's what he had to say about his musical history. I'm Tad Mullenix. I record for Ghostly International, and we are in my basement studio in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I grew up in Florida and suburban Detroit. My high school friend taught me how to make music myself. I was in bands and collaborating and trying stuff with synthesizers and drum machines, but I wanted to make music myself and he showed me shareware trackers, freeware tracker programs that I could install on the computer I already had. Like my, It's actually my mom's computer. And I could just arrange my own uh, samples into music. And it was sort of an epiphany for me because I liked a lot of different styles and I could do them all myself. I just didn't have the means yet. So um, that kind of opened the floodgates and I just started making everything I liked, like techno, drum, bass, hip hop stuff. And I was influenced by tons of people like Luke Vibert, Aphex Twin, Jay Dilla, all the great golden era hip hop producers, um, Jeff Mills, I mean, the list goes on and on. You know, my skater friends and I, we would go to raves on the weekends, and this is in the mid-90s, so it was around the height of the rave era in Detroit. When I came to Ann Arbor, I was going to Dubplate Pressure, Todd Osborne's record store. He sort of specialized in hip-hop and jungle, which is a really nice compliment to all the other record stores that I was shopping at that focused more on house and techno, and then brain dance and IDM and stuff like that. I was looking for a Raga Jungle, which is really pretty insane uh, drum programming, among other characteristics, like being influenced by dub and reggae music. When I saw Todd's store, I was like, this guy has that kind of stuff, I know it. So I started bothering Todd about it. He was sort of feeding me all the information I needed to start making those tracks. And then eventually we would collaborate and start Rewind Records. Batman time. So now I'm working uh, with Todd and Carlos at Todd's shop. Sam was looking for some talent and he came back into Dubplate. So Tad kind of was, you know, what really broke Ghostly open as far as like truly being a like non-genre label. So I, I had the first 12 inch out, that was Matthew effectively. Todd Osborne had a record store called Dubplate Pressure that was open at odd hours because Todd operates on odd hours. And 
Tad was working at the store and I think Todd convinced Tad to make a demo tape. The demo cassette, one side is his dance music alias, which at the time was James T. Cotton. Now it's just JTC. Um, kind of like at the time it was more sort of skittery, um, fractured house music. And then the other side, I don't know if it was intentional or not, is is a mix of like hip hop beats that are very Jay Dilla, kind of broken, relaxed, and also experimental music, which is Tad Mullenix under his birth name. And I was like, oh man, I kept, I think he meant for me to focus on the dance records. And I was like, all of this is like insane. Like I just couldn't believe that this was one person. And so I don't know if the pitch at the time was as such, but what effectively happened was all of those aliases got records in the first like five ghostly titles, kind of reset the catalog. So he broke the label into two labels, ghostly and spectral. Spectral became a dance music arm, which is what Matthew Deere was focusing on. So there's GHS 001 is hands up for Detroit. Tad comes along. Ghostly gets reset as GI01, which is Tad Molinix, and then Spectral is born, and that Spectral 1 is Matthew Deere. So Ghostly 1 is Tad Molinix, Ghostly 2 is Dabry 1-3. I think GI5 is Disco Nouveau compilation, which is Charles Manier, which is another Tad Molinix alias. So his skill was so vast that it, it basically like sort of immediately like created a roster. The Dabry album 1-3 is, I think, our first sort of like success of a record where it like got attention, it got press. Um, I think people were like, okay, this is a voice, a meaningful voice that people hadn't heard before. And that kind of put us on the proverbial map. I felt like, you know, I could judge Sam's character and he seemed like a good person to work with. He had ambition and it, we would be starting fresh together, which felt good. It would have been maybe a different dynamic had I started with a seasoned label, you know, maybe a label that was a little callous or jaded, you know. You know, Todd introduced me to him, so that's sort of like... He had already gone through Todd's bullshit yeah, detector. He did, yeah, he went through the Todd filter. <laughs> uh, but, um, and the fact that Sam came back and said, wait, I, I'm I'm changing the game. I want to be a more eclectic label than just a house label or whatever I thought he wanted to be initially really like impressed me. And yeah, the fact that it was a local thing was really appealing. I was like, let's start something here. And from then on, there was great events and parties and releases and friends. And there was definitely like a little scene here. It was cool. Todd Osborne is like the record clerk that you're kind of afraid of because he has like this sort of um, insanely deep knowledge of everything. In my life, he operates as sort of this um, elevator where I'm like, oh, this could be better. Like, what would Todd say about this? In the actual ghostly chronology, he is a connector and sort of a, a through point, you know, from being a record store person who sold me records and explained stuff to me to working with Tad, introducing us to Tad, and, st and and being an artist on the label, that's consistently great. And then in the middle somewhere, we'll have like, let's break it down like this, and have like a, a drum fill come in. Oh, word? No, it's just like, oh, oh, word? What? 
It's all outlined in my head, don't worry. As long as I don't have an aneurysm, this song is going off without a hitch. And as long as I don't have an aneurysm, this song is going out without a hitch. Hey! Uh, this is Todd Osborne. I record as Osborne with an E on Ghostly and Spectral, or only Spectral, who knows. And we're in the back room of me and my son's record store called Technical Equipment Supply in Ypsilanti, Michigan. Dubplate Pressure, when it opened up, it was just jungle and independent hip hop. It was kind of influenced by Mike Banks and having he had submerged and had interesting records, but you kind of had to come there and he wanted you to see the city. He would make special labels that were only available there called like somewhere in Detroit because you didn't know where this place was exactly. I always liked that idea of having some special records in your little secret record store. Sam Valenti, he would come in. He seemed like an, just another U of M student, but then started talking to him and realized, like, oh, you're into the right stuff for the right reasons, a good sense of humor. Me and him both were getting more into finding out where samples had came from between like 99 and 2001. It seemed like every weekend, Sam would pick me up at my house with Tad and we'd go to Motor Lounge and listen to stuff on the way there that, would, that me and Tad thought was weird because Sam had a good sound system in his truck. But really weird stuff at the time, like White House and things like that. There was more noise. I was making a lot more booty stuff at the time, and Tad was working on Dabry stuff. first release I put out with Spectral was that About Ready to Jack with a Ed DMX track on the other side and that was made in a tracker just like the jungle stuff and me just talking in some headphones sampling my voice and trying to make something that would be played at a warehouse in Detroit because even though I didn't go to a bunch of those things I, I liked the style of like Richie Houghton's parties, things like that. That's kind of why it was a homage to him with the Jack spelled J-A-K. It was just good he ended up playing that song out, so it worked. Sam mentioned this track. You should release it as Osborne with an E. I'd put out some stuff on Throw under Todd Osborne that was house. He wanted something that was unique just for his label. And he liked it with the E. He said it sounded kind of like something from Chicago. I didn't mind because everybody would spell my name wrong in any magazine. They'd automatically spell it with an E. The way I produce stuff is way different from Tad in that Tad goes goes in when he's going to make something, he's thinking like, I'm going to be Dabry today and I'm going to make some Dabry tracks or I'm going to be JTC today and do that. Whereas I just make whatever and then I'll just play people, like if Sam comes over, play him 100 tracks and he can figure out if some of these are Osborne or some other alias 
like when I'm making some house thing, I think I'm like, I want to totally rip off the Chicago house track. And then you try, but it's never exactly right. And it ends up being something that sounds like you, you know, so. That album that came out in 2008 was just Sam picking tracks and putting it together. It wasn't conscious to be an album. Like I'd rather have some other person like I, they feel like this should go this way because I can't think of how it should. The fun thing with music for me is the people that you meet. It's not like you go to a job and everyone's boring and everyone talks about boring stuff. It's like, I get to go to Todd's house and try this crazy Japanese whiskey and listen to this unreleased Wu-Tang record that never came out. And music people are like that, you know, they're full throttle. You know, I don't, I don't have a sort of thesis on what Ann Arbor means to electronic music, but it's an interesting place to make work because you have a lot of influences. It is a quote unquote small town, but you're having the influence and the radio of Detroit is still your main beacon. Groups of people, merge and I was able to meet local artists like Dyke House who was working at the record store and Doug Coombe who shot all the photos and has shot literally every band you know of. Um, he did a lot of the White Stripe stuff and he's still doing his thing and um, I got to meet locals that were all passionate and I could bring them in. This graphic designer, this photographer, I met Jacob Alexander who's Heather Pearls on the label and did a lot of A&R for the label over the years um, and was a big part of Ghostly was a kid in town and Matthew was like, hey, that we should hire that kid. I'm like, really? Like what? He's like, oh, he's cool. We should hang out with him. And Will Calcutt was was living in Matthew Deer's building and Will Calcutt sh uh, designed a lot of the early ghostly titles and a lot of the photography and the art direction. Um, so it just was like fun. I think like the college experience for me was how can I meet all these weirdos and like somehow like create some order out of the chaos, you know, but also everybody wanted to do their own thing. So it was nice, like everyone wanted to make work or DJ or have a club night or work at a label. And so it just sort of perpetuated. The idea of working with your friends felt very integral to the beginning of Ghostly. I'm here with Will Calcutt in Los Angeles, graphic designer, creative, jack of all trades. I first met Sam and Matt because Matt and I were living in the same apartment building in Ann Arbor and Matt was throwing parties in his apartment and I uh, saw Sam DJ there and remember him playing Gila Magic Orchestra and sort of realizing that these, these guys were probably a part of the same tribe that I was from. That, I mean, Sam was an impeccable dresser in college, which everyone else looks like slobs. So that was sort of a, a big standout. I mean, that he just, he carried himself with poise. And another thing that was foundational is that Sam and I were both taking art history classes. Sam and I really bonded deeply over um, synthesizing a lot of the things that we really were in love with from art history and, you know, appropriating that stuff into a modern American electronic music label. But the other angle on that was also that Sam had gone to Cranbrook. Cranbrook is a school that is a grade school up through, I think they even have graduate programs. Uh, it was started as a 
a nexus for the arts and crafts movement and the idea of craft being a noble pursuit at, at any level. And this ties into the manufacturing history of Michigan and the idea that uh, you know workmanship and craftsmanship are, are very noble endeavors. And if you're gonna do something, it should be done well. But so Sam had been steeped in that culture that combined with the, the mid nineties love of the way electronic music had been evolving and developing. And then understanding that there was all this, there was all this talent um, in Michigan and the Midwest and, and America and that the labels we loved were European, those were sort of all the ingredients that kind of went into the into the cauldron. The first thing I remember working on was the first Dabry record. And Tad had Tad had made a little JPEG idea of the of the cover, but he'd made it at such a small resolution that it was it was comically, you know, it was like a hundred pixels wide or something like that. And so I remember spending way too much time redrawing it as vectors. That album art was, you know, we did a spot gloss on it and it sort of, you know, there was a vinyl version. So they sort of had to basically redraw it so that that stuff had all, that could all work. And that kind of became the first project that I worked on. I instantly got understood the idea of what Ghostly International is supposed to be as a, both a, a wink, a joke, but also as a sincere statement of like, no, we're, we're bigger than reality, you know, because we really, we were just college kids. And so, we were like, well, what, what can we do to obfuscate that or like hide that? And it's like, well, what if we just make it look as shiny, as expensive as possible, or as sort of, you know, as if it was produced by some sort of, you know, yeah, some sort of ghostly major label. first Go See record has a cartoon by Michael Siegel, who was working at the record store Neptune Records at the time, which was sort of, Neptune kind of pushed my taste into rock, into experimental. Like it, it widened my taste to a degree that I, I felt like Ghostly could exist in this kind of store. Meeting Michael, who is a local Detroit artist, and being like, oh, I, I can work with this artist for the album cover and it's gonna be really good. But instead of do, having sort of a rough aesthetic, I wanted to see if we could do a really like crisp DIY aesthetic, which is like, even the name is supposed to be kind of a pun. Like the international is kind of a piss take. Like it's like, you know, whatever international is like a, is a big company. So ghostly is like nowhere, international is like everywhere, but it's supposed to have a little bit of play in it where it's like this, this is like one guy, this isn't a big company, but kind of playing with expectations and even Siegel's artwork is like a boy, cat and bird character. So it's like very not techno, it's very not serious. The idea of attaching icons, which is kind of a Japanese thing and also kind of like a Disney thing with this sort of, at the time, experimental music felt to me like a nice gestalt, like it had a tension to it as opposed to making a serious album cover and a serious record that kind of just like talks to the, the base of people who already know it. It's like we had these characters and we make shirts with them and like you could have a boy shirt or a cat shirt or a bird shirt and like, it just, I don't know, it just was like a breath of fresh air. Like I like color, I like character design. You know, even the ghost logo is, is like sort of has a referential air to it. Like you kind of recognize it, but you, it, you'd seen it before, but it's, is it friendly? Is it impersonal? Is it stoic? Like, I, I don't know. I think visual language and communication to me is a big part of how we interpret music. So 
um, before we had a really strong identity as artists, because all the artists were brand new pretty much, and a label is brand new, having these sort of characters be like sort of leading charge kind of gave the whole thing a focus. I graduated and didn't come to New York until 06. The Disco Nouveau compilation, which I think was like our first sort of global breakout, comes out in 2002. Uh, Matthew Deere's Leave Luck to Heaven comes out in 2003. Um, we also put out our first sort of proper label compilation, Idol Tryouts, which is like a mix of everybody in 03. And then I think that the next few years is us kind of experimenting with like who beyond our crew should we work with. And also it was like, okay, like who's next that I think was worthy of more attention, but maybe were kind of put to the side because they were in the state. So artists like Luzine pop up in like 0304, who's a Seattle artist, Jeff White, who was in Ohio at the time, um, Twine, who was in Ohio, Solvent from Toronto. That was kind of the beginning of broadening out. And there was like some European, like German producers on Spectral and you know, the, friend, the friendships were growing because we were touring and meeting people and getting really good demos. So it felt like the right time to open the door a little bit. It's also kind of like the beginning of some like lean years too, where we were experimenting with stuff, you know, bands and things like that, that I, I still stand behind, but I think the audience wasn't quite maybe there for. Also, you're starting to see this sort of decline of the, you know, iTunes comes out CD sales have waned. Vinyl sales are actually not that great at the time. It's like it hadn't quite resurged yet. I'm like, okay, this is a real thing, but how are we going to do this? Putting songs in commercials and stuff like that, like paid the bills for a while. It was touch and go because this is all post Napster. And then you have iTunes is kind of the sort of cool savior in some ways because it's like actually monetizing music like ours, which and we got a lot of love from them. Um, but there was this sort of shift at like, what's going to replace the good old fashioned CD vinyl thing happening while we were also sort of spreading our wings and trying to do more ambitious projects. You also have this sub-label called Spectral Sound, which is more devoted to house and techno and explicitly dance floor cuts. The records that people will be receiving as part of this series are not Spectral Sound releases. That is still very much a part of the Ghostly experience. Yeah, think of it as like the yin-yang of Ghostly. Um, even though most of the records on, in this box don't have anything or much to do with rave like you wouldn't you couldn't really draw a line even though i guess the idea of raves having like chill rooms and ambient rooms is kind of this sort of like alter space that you could go between i like how dance music kind of just happens at its own clip carlos souffrant who's an amazing dj from ann arbor 
who used to work at the record stores I'd go to, we always talked about records being a conversation between each other, especially for like early Detroit techno. It's like, oh, Richie Houghton would make a record and then Carl release a record. And you could tell they probably were hearing each other's records and kind of like naturally pushing it on each other. So I, dance music to me has its own cadence, not literally the, the music itself, but also the way it's released. It's not to be, it's supposed to be too precious. So I think I like the freedom of having a label that doesn't have to be, um, everything's not a narrative. Like these are just, sometimes it's just tracks. Sometimes the track is just a track. And I think that's kind of nice. I always kind of like a little bit of that, but at the same time, I also am very sentimental and love uh, ambient music and listening music and music with words and what have you. So it's sort of this war between the ephemeral and the timeless that I think we always are trying to we're riding on that wave. I believe in like purity of like mission and, and vision. And I think some people do like techno purism really well. And I kind of like leave it to them to be like, you know, this is the canonical form of what Detroit techno is. And I always knew that that wasn't what I was trying to do with the label. Like, you know, Matthew Deere's first records, for the most part, all have his face, whether it's obscured or not. You know, it's like the idea of like bringing the human to the story. Um, to me was lacking, at least in, in the American scene. So it was wanting to show the humanity of it, not without taking away the sort of elegance of anonymity and um, precision. It's like, no, like, these are these are artists. These artists contain, contain multitudes. I really, I wanted to operate like a local label, but I didn't want to be seen as a local label. So it was a really, to me, the, the local bin was like a sort of really scary place it was like oh that you're you've been subjugated to you know a uh, local interest story and i was always like no we're making music for like the world but i thought of us as part of a continuum of like new artists the, the sort of boomerang that started with detroit and chicago with house and techno hits europe and like blows up summer of love blah blah, blah. like and you know like in the german minimal stuff was coming back and i thought of us as kind of another like a return serve on Europe, like, okay, we're gonna make the American version of this music. Our friends are good enough to be alongside everyone else. That, that seemed exciting. The early days were, were um, I'd go to people artists' houses and sit and they would play me songs. I'd sit over their shoulder and same with design, sit over the designer's shoulder and, you know, maybe push pixels and maybe be annoying, but also just be around artists, which I think was not something that I was told was a job as a kid. You know, it's like you can have an artistic life, even if you're not an artist, you can have artistic life or be around artistic people which I think is really what Ghostly is about for me, is A, communication, get to communicate with a lot of, relatively a lot of people uh, every day, and B, the relationships and the friendships, even our friendship over the years. It's like shorthand, like, oh, we're all on the same page. We like, we believe in art, we believe in artists, 
we love music, the rest can work itself out. But like, that's kind of enough for me to have like a bond with somebody. I think that's thing about art people misunderstand. It's like, you don't just have hits and then crank them out. It's like, it's, it is alchemy. Like every time we release a record, you really don't know what's going to happen. I think I'm partly, partly addicted to that feeling because it is fun. Cause it's just like, well, who's going to hear this? But also it's kind of scary because every time you throw down a card, it's like, it could be nothing too, which a lot of, you know, with 500 releases, we have all sorts of outcomes and it's, you know, there's a lot of heartbreak in, in music. Your people are putting their, their hopes and dreams into our hands as a label to some degree. So, you know, there's definitely like days where you're like, this is, there's too much emotion to, to bear. I always thought of records as, in a good way, as products and objects that like, the object itself, even in a digital format, has a, a glow about it or an energy about it that like, you are excited to have it, excited to own it. That's why I think, I think we think still in physical, as a physical label, even though a lot of our, the majority of our sales are digital, like every other label, um, they're still works of art. They have, they're, they're a collaboration between artists, visual artists and musician, and, hopefully pushed along by the people around it, which is the label. Tell me a little bit about how you approached the curation overall of all of the records that people are gonna receive as part of the Vinyl Me Please Ghostly Special Collection. I think we wanted to tell a story that encompasses the different styles of the label, most importantly. Um, Ghostly's not supposed to be able to be guessed as far as you shouldn't be able to know exactly what you're getting just by seeing the label. So the box kind of functions as that. It, it wouldn't make sense as a group, I think, if you just um, threw the records together. But hopefully through this podcast and, and what have you, it, it in the liner notes, it tells a, a story of a label emerging. Uh, and also it functions as a record collector object with records that have either never been pressed to vinyl before um, are out of print or are very scarce to begin with. So uh, Molly and I thought a lot about both of those sides making this thing together. Well, we've come to the end of the first episode of the VMP Anthology, the story of Ghostly International. The next episode is gonna be arriving in your inbox soon. And from that point on, you're gonna have some tough choices to make. While you're able to see the first two records in this series, the rest of the albums are packaged in black secrecy sleeves with belly bands around them to tell you which set to open next. We encourage you to wait to open these concealed records so that you can do it along with episodes three and four of this podcast. Yes, it will take a little bit of discipline, but we think it will be worth it. The other path available to you is to go ahead and open all the records at once and just enjoy the podcasts and the records at your own pace. We totally understand that some people will take this path and we're totally cool with it. 
We just ask that you don't spoil the experience for the people who choose to be surprised. This season of VMP Anthology was produced and hosted by me, Vivian Host. Yes, that's my real name. My engineer is Ryan Woodhall. I'll be back soon with even more of the ghostly story. Talk to you then. Thank you.